Idlewild Arts respectfully acknowledges the Kawishba Kawiakna, also known as Kawia Band of Indians, and all nine sovereign bands of Kawia people who have stewarded this land throughout the generations and continue to steward this land for all future generations. Idlewild Arts Foundation is proud to present One World, One Idlewild, the series. In conversation with Pamela Jordan, the series brings together thought leaders, creatives, influencers, and change makers, highlighting the work of citizen artists whose careers and lives have been shaped by the transformative power of art. Have the courage to lead. The best thing that ever happened to me was the Northridge earthquake. Artists throughout the world, we are the speakers of truth. We are the most authentic expression of the day of the times. Be determined to get the most you can from every opportunity. And where you don't see opportunities, ask for them. Great leaders recognize that the work requires urgent patience. You can learn about classroom management. You can learn about the new curriculum. You can learn about the new way to teach whatever it is. But at the end of the day, if those students feel that love, they're more likely to listen, they're more likely to trust, they're more likely to be vulnerable. And in that space, that's where you can change some kid's life. From Idlewild Arts Foundation in Idlewild, California, I am Pamela Jordan with One World, One Idlewild, the series. Today, we're listening to my interview with Stash Mintek. I spoke with Stash on October 20th, 2021, when he was still the Chief Executive Officer of Ghetto Film School. A 2003 graduate of Yale University with a double major in English and Film Studies, Stash worked at Ghetto Film School from 2004 until 2022. Throughout the years, he served as a Program Director, Director of Development and Special Projects, and Executive Producer of Digital Bodega. He then went on to serve as the executive director of Ghetto Film School, LA, and chief executive officer. Stash, thank you so much for being with me today. I'm so excited to bring your great success with Ghetto Film School to our audience. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. It's a real pleasure to be here. And um, yeah, excited to, to talk about my work and, and learn more about Idlewild in the process. So very happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, the first thing, you know, at, at Idlewild Arts, I'm always struck with these young artists who know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are an artist, right? We don't tell them that they are. They know that they are. I'm wondering for you, when did you know that you were a filmmaker, that that was what you were meant to do in life? Oh, that's a, I mean, that's a great question. I, I would say I'd start out just by saying as a full disclosure that um, I, I think I can probably count on two hands, like, the number of, of uh, projects I've made or been involved in that actually sort of saw any light of day, including like super obscure film festivals. And these days when I make a project uh, outside of GFS, it's really just a way to relax and, and kick back. I love being on a set. I love the creative exchange of ideas and the ticking clock and the the realization of a vision um, in real time. That, that process, I almost felt Find like therapeutic at this point. So it's sort of like my time off to kick it is to make movies um, on the side. Um, but but I have the privilege of uh, running an organization that is generating and helping young people produce hundreds of films a year. So we are kind of like a mini studio in that respect. And, and to go back to the, the heart of your question, um, it really like, I, I should sit back up and just say like, I grew up 
on a sheep farm in Wisconsin. So <laughs> like <laughs> deep, deep country, uh, like my parents were back to nature hippies. And so, you know, um, there wasn't a whole lot of anything except just like cows and like farmland when I was growing up. Um, but when I was five, my folks got one of those uh, camcorders. It was like the old school VHS. You remember like they were like the size of a bazooka and you know, they yes. were really heavy. And they were, the idea was we'd make home movies, but almost right away we started making like action films and superhero movies and and they would let me direct. So I was like five and like saying like, all right, in the next scene. So pretty early on, I was like getting to make movies just at home for fun um, and then watching them back and playing them back. So I, from as far back as my memory goes, I've always loved the uh, idea of coming up with a, uh, a story and then realizing it visually. Um, and then through, you know, through school and then even out of school, when I first graduated college, I was thinking like, you know, like that movie thing, making movies is really going to be my path. Um, and I was really fortunate to learn about this organization that was committed to that and helping young artists make movies and realize their dream when I was like 23 years old and got hired as a summer teacher at GFS. And basically I've never left. So uh, I can tell you a lot more about that, but the um, that connection for me clicked right away of, I know how much fun it is to make a project and, and realize it. And, um, and I've had a chance now to help young people make, I don't know, it's like probably thousands of movies now that GFS has been produced over the years. That's so incredibly interesting. I I know for myself, but also so many arts administrators that that I've met, uh, you know, over the years, um, that path uh, of you know a, a, that artistic path is so important and necessary for running, you know, running our institutions. You have to understand that passion for these young people and what's really driving them. Um, that's well, well, you know, let's talk about ghetto film school because it's now just over 20 years old. And I'm, I'm always struck by, you know, what, a, what a founder sort of looked out into the world and said, this, this is missing. We need to have this. And now, you know, over 20 years, it's still going strong, stronger than ever. Um, how, tell us how ghetto film school started and, and who started it. Sure. So, uh, our founder is a guy named Joe. Um, he was a social worker by training and he was living and working in a neighborhood in the South Bronx called Hunts Point um, for many years, doing a variety of things, running different programs. Um, and, uh, and then he got a fellowship in 1999 to go to USC film school, which, you know, is sort of an unexpected direction. Most people in social work don't go to film school. Um, but, but he had this idea that perhaps he could uh, learn the storytelling techniques at film school and then help to tell stories of his own community that weren't getting told at that time. Um, but while he was at USC uh, and you know going through the film film training, it dawned on him that it would be a really amazing thing to bring back that kind of quality of education and the amount of resources. I mean, SC has an incredible campus and you know these amazing studio spaces and equipment and guest filmmakers coming in all the time and helping to make it very real for the students there. And he thought, you know, it would be really cool to bring something like that back to his own community in the Bronx. So he he actually that next summer, so the summer of 2000, he took the curriculum from the grad school, didn't even white it out. It still said USC <laughs> at the top, just boosted it. And he came back to the Bronx and he brought two of his classmates with him who had been in the grad school program. And the three of them just taught the program, the exact same thing they had just been doing at SC, basically. And they got a group of teenagers together from other programs Joe had run. And there, were, I think there were 13 kids in that first class. 
And the assignment was the classic grad school film assignment, like tell, uh, make a short film with no dialogue uh, that's like five minutes long. And uh, at the end of that summer of the students making these projects that were again, taught at an MFA level, they were studying great films. They were uh, sort of the, it was almost like Joe and his colleagues didn't know enough to dumb it down. You know what I mean? Like they were just teaching it unfiltered at a top high level to these smart teenagers. And at the end of that summer, every kid completed a project. They did a public screening. 200 people showed up to see these, these works. And, and several of these movies could have definitely competed in the grad school program at USC. Like they were at that level. And these, wow. this is without any of the infrastructure. Like they were in a borrowed bodega storefront, like literally teaching out of a bodega. And they had a couple of computers from um, a school that Joe knew that like loaned it out. It was like a $0 operation that first summer. So, so they knew that they were onto something that um, even without any resources at all, but with a really high bar of expectations um, and a certain kind of purity of uh, art that it wasn't about other stuff. This was just about helping young people tell stories. Um, they were getting this uh, outstanding product that came out of it. So, you know, we've grown a lot over the last 21 years, but uh, we've always tried to maintain that high level of expectation. We never dumb things down for the students and, and a real strong commitment to their story. In fact, to this day, we sign a contract with the students when they're accepted to the program um, that tells them we will never tell them what story to tell. Um, we will just try to help them realize the best version of their own story. And so that means you have kids coming in and some of them are making like sappy love stories and some are making like zombie thrillers and some are making really thoughtful kind of uh, transcendental <laughs> sort of meditations <laughs> on life. And it's all just a reflection of their own style and voice um, rather than projecting onto them. Hey, you all have to make a story about X, Y or Z. So let's stick with that a minute. It takes a lot of roles. It takes a lot to make a film, right? I, I've learned a little bit about that being here at Idlewild Arts. There are just lots of uh, different positions that people have to do. Is every student exposed to all aspects of filmmaking or how does that work? That's a great question. And we can geek out about this stuff at GFS <laughs> forever. I, the When I was hired in 04, I was coming in with a really more of like a screenwriting training that had been my focus in college so so i was really interested in bringing like the stealing the best ideas i learned over four years of uh storytelling and and the screenwriting practice so building in lessons to that and 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 you know joe had come from usc which has a heavy production focus and over the years we've hired young teachers who come from all kinds of backgrounds in terms of different film schools and approaches. Um, and, and we've always sort of woven in the best, like the, the curriculum and pedagogy today is this rich tapestry of all the best kinds of training, um, all taught at a sort of high legit film school level. But I would say if I had to like, you know, sort of really simplify, I would say a, a good day at GFS, um, you're going to get three things. And it's almost like picture a pie chart. That first slice of pie is going to be uh, storytelling. So you're going to be doing writing exercises, developing characters, learning three-act structure, and really getting deep into that, um, that writing pr process. Another third is going to be the technical. So learning how to operate a camera, learning how to edit on, on software, uh, learning the ins and outs of the, the technical pieces of what it takes to make a film. And then the final third is going to be about the business. So that can look like learning the history of cinema as an industrial art form. It's going to be meeting top people who are in the industry and 
learning about how it works today from every perspective. Um, and at the end of that day, you know, you've really had a rich meal of uh, storytelling, technical training, and, and the business side, um, which we feel like will allow the students to understand enough of what goes into it so they can start charting their own course as they go on to college and beyond. Having sampled a lot, they some of them are going to get a taste right away for, oh, I want to be the boss. Like, I want to be a producer someday. <laughs> or others are going to really love, fall in love with um, a particular technical aspect, like running sound or, or being a, a cinematographer. And we want them all to consider those options viable. So does every student, you know, I'm thinking back to what you said about a contract with them. Does every student make a film? You know, by the end of the program, has everyone made their own film? Oh yeah. Um, in fact, that assignment I told you the very first summer when the kids made their six minute shorts with no dialogue, that's still the first assignment to this day. Um, so um, the way it works um, now in, and we run programming in New York, LA and London, we will accept uh, uh, 35 incoming fellows every year, age 14 to 18. So when they get into our fellows program, they, um, they're signing up for, for two and a half years of intensive training. It's like an extracurricular program on steroids. They're all going to high school, but they're coming to us full-time for three consecutive summers, uh, every Saturday for the two school years between those summers. It adds up to about a thousand hours of classroom instruction, which is more than it takes to get a liberal arts degree, like on top of high school. So they, wow. they're, it's a really extraordinary young person that's ready to sign away their life, right? They, there's no more time going to the beach and playing basketball <laughs> and like, you know, video games on the couch. Like they are in class studying German expressionist cinema from the 1930s or whatever, whatever the lessons are. Um, but for the, the right student, it's the jackpot because this intensive training means we have a lot of time with them to develop their skills and expose them to all these different um, aspects of film. So yeah, they, they all make short films that first summer and then they begin to crew up on films that become more and more sophisticated and complex over the, the two and a half years. And the final film uh, the students make is actually an international production. So we uh, take the students to a foreign location every year. And we've been to, I think we produce 20 international films now that are all made by the students and working with local actors and crew in the language of the host country. So, you know, when it's, um, when it's time to make the movie in Israel, the students are directing actors in Hebrew. And when they're making the movie in Rome, wow. it's all in Italian. So it's wow. a very, very high level assignment for a 16 year old, but, um, but we prepared them over the previous two and a half years. So they're ready for that challenge. Are there any grade requirements from the students high school? You know, do they have to keep a certain GPA in order to stay, you know, in GFS? That's a great question too. Um, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that the experience our students had at GFS was uh, unique and very much arts focused. And so um, while it is competitive to get in and we see, you know, 300 and something applications for those 35 incoming slots, um, there is no academic requirement um, coming into the program. The, the application consists of uh, three short essays that are all storytelling essays, the students write. Um, and even there, we're not really checking for spelling or other things. We, we wanna know, do you have a visual point of view? And can you kind of tell a story that keeps us hooked and drawn in? Um, and then we're, we're also looking for a, a real sense of commitment that this, there's a passion for this stuff and the students are 
you know, these are the students that are driving their parents crazy because they're insisting that they subscribe to the Criterion Collection because they're like wanting to watch <laughs> old school movies. And and the, and a lot of times the folks are like, we don't know what to do with this kid, but they love movies. Um, and and what that what that leads to that's very interesting is a classroom where you've got 35 students and you might be, you know, a 4.0 honor student sitting there right next to a student who's just barely passing like their, their regular classes in school. But in the, this classroom, your peers and you're all seen as equals in terms of your creative talent and potential. And, um, and it can be for some students, a real refreshing experience to be out of a conventional classroom setting where they've perhaps self-identified as not a strong student, but, but here it's where your ideas and your creativity really are valued. And, and so we're able to support a different kind of discussion in that way. Um, and another sort of outcome side effect of that is we have to be resilient and creative about how best to support the students as they move on from high school and out of our program. So we have a whole piece of what we offer, which is just college services. And, and that college services never looks the same for any two kids because everyone's in a different academic situation. Everyone has different goals in terms of where they want to go. Almost all are going on to college and we're really big believers in that. Um, if a student chooses not to go to school or wants to take a gap year, we help them figure that out too. But um, but for some kids, that stretch, that that big step for them is going to be junior college for two years uh, at a local community school. And then they'll figure out transferring credits on to a four-year school. For others, where we can kick in and really be helpful is, you know, they're, they're high school guidance counselors saying, yeah, apply to this state school. And we're saying you should really be considering an Ivy League school, right? So when we had a student, this was big for me because I went to Yale. Like when we had our first GFS student go on to Yale a few years ago, I like took the afternoon off. I was like, yes, <laughs> like hula bula. Um, and I wouldn't say that's for every kid. Like everyone has to sort of choose what their path is. But But where we can be helpful, hopefully, is like, opening up a range of options that they may not otherwise be presented with, and then providing some resources to help them get there and, and achieve that. So that sounds like it's extremely competitive to get into that. And also, I had a question, do you take them as a cohort and they stay for the two and a half years? Can someone come into the program in the middle of the two years? Or, you know, how, how does that work? It sounds competitive. And it sounds like once you're in, you all have a real commitment to that group. Yeah, 100%. You you nailed it. It there's no days off. There's no optional classes. It's it's all because it's so intensive. And in the same way that if you were preparing to shoot a movie, you know, you you can't just sort of like pop in and out, right? Like every every day builds on everything that's been built up into that point. So if you miss a day, that's seven precious hours of instruction that you're not going to get back. So we, you know, we are really intense and focused on that idea that um, the, the student who wants to be here has made that commitment. And, and then our responsibility is to meet that commitment and take it every bit as seriously as they do. Um, so yeah, there's no days off. <laughs> it's intense. Um, and, and I, I would say too, that if you've got, you know, there are other arts programs and we partner with a bunch of arts organizations that, will often refer students to us. There are all kinds of ways to experience art and creativity and plenty of resources in LA and New York and London where you can pop in when you want and have that. And those are great. It, it's not to say that that's like a, a bad model at all. Um, and my, my mom is an art teacher and, and I grew up around that kind of exposure and the value of that too. But our specific model is just so intense and is always leading to a film that 
um, yeah, you got to be there in class and showing up and, um, and, you know, when you build something really special, you can have students that commit to that. Even if they're coming in New York, I used to have a student who came from Staten Island. So he had to take a boat to get to, to like a train, to get to a bus, to get to our, he was coming two hours one way. Um, out here in LA, we've had students coming from San Bernardino. You know, that's, that's a two hour trip. Um, but if you build something that's really special and has a lot of quality, and then you eliminate barriers, so we we pay for all the kids' transit. Then then they can be there and they can show up and and have a really special experience. This is really an incredible program, and just to think about um, you know where it started, and now you're in not just New York but L.A. and London. Um, and I understand that you are uh, now embarking on a number of industry-facing projects with companies like Netflix. So, you know, this is sort of what's next for, for GFS. Yeah, so um, we've been, I'd say from the very beginning, fortunate to, or in the early years, uh, land on the radar of the creative industry in different ways. And that started with like filmmakers that would come in to do guest speak guest classes, like right away. That was something that we, the first year we were able to place a student with Lee Daniels back when he had his his office in, in Harlem. So we had a bunch of interns going there and um, and, and so we've always, I think, been authentic to the industry in a way that didn't see it as a bad thing. It's not like they're the bad guys, we're the good guys. It's more just like, what's going to be an authentic win-win where our student can get a job or get an opportunity to create, and this company can benefit from their experience, their perspective in the process that's making both better, right? So that's always how our sort of philosophy has been when it comes to engaging with the creative sector. When we um, expanded to LA, that ramped up quickly because, you know, the studio system lives here. And um, we've we've now got dozens and dozens of partners with the within the creative industry uh, across all three cities, New York, LA, and London. Um, you mentioned the Netflix project. We've, we actually got two things going with them right now. Um, one is a project that is um, supporting emerging Black filmmakers. So we have reached out to our extended network of thousands now of students and alumni and received applications and then selected the top sort of ideas to be greenlit. And then Netflix is providing production budgets of 25000 per filmmaker to create short films that um, have a, a unique point of view. And we just premiered the first cohort of those films um, this fall, and we're doing it again for this coming summer. Um, we're also doing a project with Netflix that is focused on nonfiction. So they have hired us to look to early career talent. So folks that are um, more like out of college and sort of in their first 10, 15 years in the industry, um, coming from diverse backgrounds who are looking to get onto shows and develop more experience working on physical productions. So we've just placed 10 fellows in their nonfiction program, um, working on 10 different Netflix TV shows that are either in development or are currently shooting now. So I think uh, the future for us in terms of that kind of partnership is being seen as a kind of go-to resource that can identify creative talent and really prove wrong this conventional wisdom that, oh, well, we'd love to hire folks, but they're just not out there, right? Mm -hmm. You and I know that's not true. They're out there and there, there's a ton of creative talent there, but it takes that kind of opening of a door and uh, making that connection very intentionally uh, in an authentic way. So we've, we've begun to do more and more of that, I'd say, and that's, that's a, a bright path for us going forward with the industry. If you're just joining me, you're listening to my conversation with Stash Mintek from October 20th, 2021. Stash was in his final year as Chief Executive Officer of Ghetto Film School. 
We'll be right back. Idlewild Arts Academy is an independent boarding arts high school whose mission is to change lives through the transformative power of art. Located just two hours inland from Los Angeles and San Diego and one hour from Palm Springs, the school sits on 205 acres of forested land in the San Jacinto Mountains. Academy students receive a challenging college preparatory academic curriculum while engaging in pre-professional training in their chosen arts discipline. The school is also home to its world-renowned summer program that serves children starting at age 5 through adults age 95. Idlewild Arts believes that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity, no matter the ultimate expression, hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. To learn more, visit idlewildarts.org. Use code ONEWORLD2023 to receive a $50 discount to the 2023 Kids and Teens Summer Program. Quantities are limited and restrictions may apply. This is One World, One Idlewild, the series, presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. My name is Pamela Jordan. We're listening to my interview with Stash Mintek. I spoke with Stash on October 20th, 2021, when he was still the Chief Executive Officer of Ghetto Film School. Switching gears just a little bit, how were you able to keep the your fellows engaged during the pandemic? I'm assuming that their filmmaking moves strictly online. Talk about that. That's kind of had to be interesting. I mean, man, what a run. I, <laughs> I would love, and I, I don't think I've gotten the full deep dive on how Idlewild's done it, so I feel like I have a lot to learn from other groups that have sort of uh, steered the course through all of this. But I can tell you our, our own experience. We, you know, in March of 2020, feels like a million years ago now, but uh, it was just over like a year and a half ago. Uh, when we realized this was not a drill, like this is really happening, um, you know, we, the good news was that we were positioned in a way, I think relative to some other arts organizations that made a shift to virtual relatively easy to do. Um, part of that was because we were already located across three cities. So New York, LA, London. And that meant that we were accustomed in, in a business sense to be working remotely and across time zones and to have a certain level of autonomy across our teams that gave folks local control about decisions and how they spent their time. So from a kind of a organizational standpoint, we were prepared to take our laptops home, work from the living room, you know, plug in headphones and just get, get right back to work. Um, we also had piloted years ago, long time ago, almost 10 years ago, a virtual classroom. Uh, it was a pilot project we did with Google Creative Lab back in 2012. Um, and they were still trying to figure out video chat software at the time, but they funded a year of us being able to basically organize special classes with different cool filmmakers that would come in and teach classes to young artists from around the world. So we had kids from 60 different countries dialing into these remote classes. So we we had some experience already organizing that. And and we had the passion of the students themselves so that you know they were ready to show up the next day. And in fact, I, I think they were looking around and watching a lot of things that uh, had been built and established for them like melt in front of them. They watched school sort of collapse around them. They watched like summer programming go away. You know, the mayor of New York cut all of the summer employment youth opportunities like that. So a lot of other things were collapsing and we felt it was extra important to remain committed to serving the students, providing them with something they could do and pour all this energy and, and thought into. The very first assignment we gave them was um, 
an idea that came from a board member of ours named Matthew Hiltzig, who he just thought it would be amazing for the students to capture what it feels to be like in this moment, mm. this moment that will be unforgettable, but but to actually like execute that in a storytelling kind of way. So we we worked out, you know, uh, how to get equipment to every kid's house safely. So, you know, we'd like have these wipes and sprays on the cameras to make sure <laughs> we weren't, you know, spreading the disease, but we, we deliver these equipment packages. And then the students had the assignment to turn around within a couple of weeks of the pandemic starting. Um, tell us what it feels like to be alive in this moment. And we had a hundred short films produced across our locations. Um, it was so successful actually in the movies. Some of them were so stirring and beautiful. We took that to, um, Warner Media and AT&T, and they they kicked in funding to help us open that up as a nationwide contest last year. So then we had students submitting from, I think it was 30 states participated, and 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 we did a special end of year roundup in a in a kind of virtual red red uh, carpet showcase of the the best projects to come out of that. So I would say we embraced the moment, you know, and tried to meet the kids where they were. And then as soon as COVID started to lift a little, and and vaccinations became available, and and, and masking and, and social distancing protocols were in place. As soon as we could safely get back into the classroom, we started doing a balance of those two things. So we're mostly back in person now, um, but every so often we still do a cool guest class. If it's some great filmmaker and they wanna talk to kids across all three cities, we'll, we'll get everybody together into a Zoom chat and, and make it happen virtually. What, what do you think were the lessons learned, the good things that came out of COVID, right? That you feel will carry forward, you know, and that your students will have to navigate uh, in the future as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, you know, I think one thing that that jumped out was that even underneath the most turbulent of times, um, driving home the message to the students that there is still a way to create great art, there's still a path for that. And that that doesn't change even underneath the most extraordinary of times. And one way we were able to do that, I'm thinking back now to last summer. Um, so that international film that I, I mentioned before, we call it the thesis project. It's sort of like the capstone assignment. And we had selected uh, in 2020, the plan was to take the kids to South Korea. And so we were gonna bring students from New York and from Los Angeles. And they had they'd already uh, selected the script that was written by, it's all peer driven. so. Every kid writes a script inspired by the location of Seoul, Korea. And then as a class, they workshop them and then vote on the best one. So the students picked the best script from New York and the best one from LA. Um, they were doing all their pre-production planning when COVID hit. And we realized at some point, okay, we're not going to South Korea. Um, we, but, but there is a way to make these films. We just have to commit and get creative. So the students then took the reins and decided, okay, we can, if they checked the scripts and they realized with some adjustments, we could shoot these in domestic locations. And we fortunately, both New York and LA have big Korean populations. So we were able to recruit actors who were fluent in Korean um, to play the roles. And uh, we also got our board involved. So one of our board members is the president of Universal Pictures, uh, Peter Kramer. He did a special guest class with the students from both teams to talk to them about what it's like when you're actually producing feature films and how you get thrown curveballs all the time. He had this wild story about some Tom Cruise movie where like they had to put every piece of the set on wheels so that it could all be like wheeled out in 10 minutes or less because of some new London regulation. And they did this like the day before this big scene. So, you know, it was driving home this message that 
this is part of what you have to be ready for, right? There will be curveballs, but if you're really committed to telling your story, there is a way to do it. And I am proud to say that the films the students produced, both in New York and LA, were really successful. They were beautiful. We organized two virtual table reads where we got a ton of incredible actors together, uh, Sandra Oh and uh, Eva Longoria, and just all these amazing actors came in and they workshopped the scripts with the students to get them ready for it too. So. I, I guess that was the the enduring message I'd like our kids to take away from this. Like underneath the most difficult of times, artists can create. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Um, in addition to your fellows program, you have a roster program. Is that right? Tell us about that. That is that for high school students as well? Yeah. So so GFS today, we we basically we do three things. So we run that fellows program. We've been talking mostly about that today. Um, and that was started there for summer that that's the core program for teenage students who are age 14 to 18. Um, the roster we launched about seven years ago in New York and then expanded to LA more recently and we're opening in London next year. And that is more uh, career focused. So if fellows is focused on helping young people find their voice at a young age, um, roster is about getting that opportunity to actually make a career out of this stuff. Um, so the roster serves as a kind of network where young people can connect and share best practices and also job opportunities as they arise. We've got about 4,000 members in the roster network now. Um, that includes anyone who's ever got, done a GFS program. So alumni get into roster automatically, but we also recruit roster members from New York and LA who they're a senior in college or they're just out of college now. And they're trying to navigate this industry. You know, they might be the only one in their family trying to figure this stuff out and the roster is a resource for them. So it's, it serves as a network. And it's also where, when we get calls now, and we get calls every day now, no exaggeration from, from every kind of studio and creative company and ad agency and brand. And they're looking for uh, a junior executive, or they're looking for uh, someone who can be a sound recorder on a shoot tomorrow. We have this pool of amazing talent. We can turn around 10 resumes same day that can be considered for job placement opportunities. So, so roster is doing that work as well. And every time we place someone into a paid job or internship, it's, it's a win for us. It's a win for our partner companies. Um, and we, we've even done certain kinds of roster focused activations that are like, uh, when it comes to well, actually like the new iPhone that came out, they, they brought in a group of our roster members to create original films that were shot using it before, before it was like released as a product. So the students were shooting, they call it vertical cinema, right? Cause normal cinema is 16 by nine, but you turn an iPhone this way, it's like nine by 16. So our, our roster students created original work. Um, and that, that was something that helped promote this new product, but also give our students money and training in the process. So, so that's the, the roster is more like the job opportunity path. Um, and then I, I said, we do three things. So in addition to fellows and roster, we also run a consultancy uh, called scope and that, that is very much external facing. So it's not about our internal membership of young people. That is about helping uh, big corporations and other institutions, foundations solve problems that are at the intersection of youth and creativity. So scope projects vary super widely. Um, they happen all over the world, but they leverage our uh, sort of talent and the top alumni that have come through our program, we can hire for scope projects. And um, so scope is, is a wide range of different interesting activations that brings in money to help keep the programming free for, for all of our students at GFS. You know, I, 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 have, to, I have to say, I'm hearing you um, 
point out, you know, these, these uh, programs that you have and they're incredibly successful, but I have to tie that to the fact that you've been there since 2004 and you're, you know, climbing this at arts administration ladder so much so that you're now CEO. So you have had a hand on all of this, right? Because I can just see your trajectory. What keeps you involved and, and, you know, just creating new opportunities for the students and for the alumni and what is underneath that passion that gets you to do this? Ed, I mean, that's a great question. I, I would say like my short answer is it's never dull. <laughs> There's never been a boring day in my 17 years at GFS. Um, every, there've been some, some wild moments, but it's never dull. Um, when I backing way up, like when I first graduated college, I, I took a job like right out of college um, that fall uh, at ABC um, in New York. And I was moving to the big city. You know, this was like an exciting moment A kid from a farm is now like working at the big ABC headquarters. And, um, and I was in a department called standards and practices, which is like, most people don't know about it unless it's messed up. Um, because S and P their job is to just make sure before anything goes on the airwaves, that it's all like kosher, that it, none of it breaks any of the rules of the FCC or has any indecent content or whatever. So it was the weirdest job, Pamela. I, I was watching beer ads. That was my assignment. Like I had a job with an office and a door that closed and a TV and all day long, I just watched beer commercials over and over again. Occasionally I would have to like catch something in the beer ad, like, Oh, can't do that. Um, and it was a wild, it was a wild, like introduction to the city of New York. About six months into that job, though, I started to realize, like, I don't think this is for me. Like, I, I could tell that, that this path wasn't necessarily going to get more challenging or more interesting. It was just going to be more ads. And, and it was a good job. It was good pay. I got benefits. You know, it was like uh, kind of crazy to leave it um, fresh out of, uh, out of college. But but right away, I started thinking like, I'd, I'd much rather do something. If I'm going to spend my time on something, I'd rather do something that uh, was inspiring, that I believed in, that was challenging, that that kind of connected me back to filmmaking and something that I really love and care about. And it was like the moment I thought that, like I, I chance encounter, I, I met someone who knew about this thing called Ghetto Film School that had just, you know, been getting started. It'd been around a couple of years as a summer program. It was just becoming a year round program. They were just at the point where they could actually pay someone to work there. <laughs> like the early years, it was just all volunteers. Um, so I, I threw my hat on the ring and, and never looked back. And I, I'd say that's been true all along. It's, you know, uh, been interesting and challenging and always connected to the sense of purpose and everyone involved is a super big movie geek. So that's fun. Um, and yeah, I think working on something that you watch grow over time and seeing an idea come true, right? Like sort of seeing that vision through um, is a thing that I keep coming back to. And there's always more. There's always another exciting chapter that that we have in store and uh, the next 10 years are looking very bright for us. So, yeah. You know, people will hear your story and, and see the success of, of GFS and think, well, you know, You've arrived, but I know that I think you're a third year fellow uh, with the DeVos Institute um, of Arts Management at the University of Maryland, and you're working with Michael Kaiser, and I actually uh, interviewed him also for the podcast, and, and my point for bringing that up is 
um, you're not resting on your laurels. You're thinking, you know, what is next? How do I improve, you know, as an arts administrator? What's my vision? How, how are you finding that program? And, you know, how is it supporting you? And what are your thoughts about the future? I mean, the MK is the best. Those guys are awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, it's been, we've actually known about uh, the DeVos program for a long time. Um, they, back in, I think 2009, maybe, they piloted this thing in New York City. They then took national with uh, the support of the Bloomberg Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, um, helping provide, you basically, the deal was you get this grant but you had to go to their training in order to receive the money. And typically those in the arts world, nonprofit world know like those mandatory professional development trainings are just like the worst. They're just like worse than waterboarding. And people do it because you, you're trying to get the money to keep your program open, but, but you almost never go in with high expectations. And I came out of that first DeVos training and I was blown away. Like these guys really know what they're talking about and they're taking this really seriously. And there's a, almost like a science to what they're describing here. And so I went back for more trainings over the years. And, and then in 2016, I applied to get into the fellowship and was accepted and, and got to do the deep, deep dive um, and meet Michael directly and, and spend then uh, every summer for three consecutive summers getting a really intensive look at how arts management works. You're also in a mix of other people from around the world. So anytime I would think, oh man, like running this nonprofit or doing this arts work is challenging here, I'd have a colleague in Palestine who's trying to like raise money there, you know, uh, for for a program to serve disabled artists. It's like like the obstacles and challenges you think are hard. Like when you get global, it's a whole nother story. So. Um, I came out of that training and experience, not just with like really good uh, best practices and rigor, I think that they gave gave us and that we've been able to bring into our work, but also like a really big global perspective on how many wonderful people are out there doing this stuff. And um, uh, so I, that was, that's been my experience to date with, with them. And we're actually working with them right now on a, a plan for sort of long-term capital fundraising that, um, will be more to come on that but in the future but but they they are helping us on on sort of planning that out and then I, you you asked about sort of where we go from here and i think uh you know the the challenge of uh running an arts organization uh today is i think it it has a lot to do with um maintaining a clear sense of purpose and mission uh, amidst an increasing number of potential distractions, right, that are coming at you. Some of those distractions take the form of like money or an opportunity over here that's not on your mission. But in, you know, in the last couple of years, we've been presented with things like, hey, if you guys wanted to do this, you know, it's not really what you do, but, but there's a ton of money in it over here. Um, sometimes that takes the form of, uh, you know, having to put our students through an experience or, or describe our students or sort of rebrand our students as something that is inconsistent with our values. So uh, I, I'd say like the challenge for us is amidst all this stuff, the distractions and the, the sort of chasing the money thing that can happen, it's, it's sort of a slippery slope if you're not really careful, is to be remaining ever true, really focused on what our core value and our mission is um, because as our profile grows, we're getting just offered more and more stuff and, and you have to get picky. 
you know, and just stay really clear on this is why we exist. This is who we serve. This is what we're here for. And politely decline things that take you that would take you off of that course. They're fortunate, very fortunate to have you in this uh, CEO position. You just have such a clarity of mission and you've, you've been involved so long um, that, that that even adds a deeper value. So my last question is, what's your advice to young filmmakers who don't have access to uh, programs like Idlewild Arts Academy and Ghetto Film School? What's your advice to them? I mean, call me, like come to GFS. We, we're doing stuff around the world now, man. We're doing a project in Greece. We're doing a project in Baltimore. We're doing, uh, you know, we're in conversations with country, cities around the country. So we, we are uh, able to help more than we used to be able to. It used to be you had to like live in the Bronx <laughs> in order to be able to do GFS. And we, are, we have expanded our footprint. But, you know, I would say it also goes back to this idea we were talking about earlier that, um, you can always be creating. Uh, that 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 is a truth that you might you might find you know people challenging that or pushing back on that, but but you have to really just accept that as the truth. There's always a way to create, and sometimes the big obstacles become the big thing you can be telling the story about. I, I go back to that assignment of tell us what it feels like to be alive right now in this moment. If you can write that down, you can shoot that on an iPhone. You can. You know, you you can record a, uh, an audio memo that then you share out with the world. Um, so I'd say embrace the obstacle when it's presented to you. Turn it into the thing that you want to use as your fuel for creativity. And um, yeah, come reach out. Ghettofilm.org. We'll uh, we'll help you if you need a lift. Um, but we're here for the artists. Stash Mentek, thank you so very much for speaking with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Pamela. It's an honor to be here and a real pleasure to have the conversation with you. Thank you. You're listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. My name is Pamela Jordan. We'll be right back. At Idlewild Arts, we believe that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts by visiting idlewildarts.org giving to make a gift today. From Idlewild Arts Foundation in Idlewild, California, I am Pamela Jordan with One World, One Idlewild, the series. Today, I'm speaking with Anne Tron, a senior from Vietnam who attends Idlewild Arts Academy. Anne, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Hello, Pamela. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's really my honor. Thank you. Uh, so well, much. I know it's a busy week. It's a uh, graduation this week. And uh, so thank you. I'm so uh, excited that you're talking to me. Um, you know, I want to go back. I had the, the, the privilege of meeting your dad via Zoom. And uh, um, I know he's a He's a pretty big deal. He's a, <laughs> a very, very well-known saxophonist. Talk to me about growing up, uh, you know, it, it, at home, growing up in Vietnam and, and being with such a high-profile dad and just your <laughs> beginnings. Um, well, I was really lucky to be my dad's daughter, to be honest. He, um, he's a big deal. Yeah, he, he's awesome. He is my mentor, my dad, my teacher my best friend and my stage partner at the same time. Um, well, in the beginning, 
I, I always grow up, I was born and grow up with music in the family, music and art in the family. But I didn't really start music until I was four. And that was when I started playing the piano. Like I played classical piano, but then uh, I didn't feel the connection with it. So I moved on and tried multiple different arts, like musical theater and like visual arts. And then I did a little bit of dancing for a while, but then I still didn't really feel any connections until I um, met my best friend, saxophone. <laughs> and that's how my journey kind of started. Yeah. So that's interesting. So your dad is a saxophonist, right? He is. But yes. that, that, that's not where you started, huh? You played several instruments before getting there. Yeah, because, well, actually, he didn't let me play the saxophone because he was like, it's not a very feminine instrument. And I fight, I fight for it. I fought for it. I was like, I, I like the saxophone. I need to play the saxophone. He's like, and, and then he just eventually gave up. And he's like, yeah, I'll teach you the saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, so that's really interesting. You had to fight your way to it. And then how did you find Idlewild Arts? Because it's quite a commitment to come to a boarding arts high school all the way around the world. How did you find Idlewild Arts and why did you choose to come here? Well, it's quite, it's, it's it's a pretty much, well, I always wanted to study abroad in the United States because part of it is because my dad, uh, study abroad in the states. He was he was the first Vietnamese who got scholarship to go to Berkeley College of Music, hmm. and I want I wanted to prepare myself before I go into a college like an entire new place. Um, I want to prepare myself so that I was like, can I study abroad like for high school in the states? And that's how I found Idaho Arts. And like at the same time, I was like, a, I was a teenager, and my dad like can't keep up with with me so he was like you gotta go somewhere and then we were traveling around in the states to find school and then we found Idaho Arts online the very last minute and uh, my entire family went up and my mom just fell in love with Idaho in general she I still remember the day that I walked on campus and I saw um, people with the instruments on their back and like the smell of pine cones <laughs> and just really friendly people on campus and that's that's when I know that I wanted to 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 be here you yeah. know that's funny you say I mean I know you're a teenager and I know what that means to be a <laughs> handful um, but you know you have such energy and you know that you bring to everything that you do I love to see you perform um, talk to me about playing with the jazz combos here, because like I said, you just bring such energy when you're performing. What do you like about it? And, you know, studying with your teachers and things here. Uh, about the jazz combo. It, I really like my jazz combo classes. Well, I am the only jazz female, the, the female jazz player, woman in jazz. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's a very good curriculum that I study. I actually developed and I have improved a lot um, about my jazz skills when I came here since I came here um, we have combo class twice a week and then we have jazz theory we have jazz history and all that but jazz combo is a place where we like come together and we have rehearsal we play songs really cool jazz songs that um, our teacher Paul Carmen chose 
And then we have Marshall's class, ensemble class, twice a week. Uh, and that's kind of, combo is like more like um, concert material that we rehearse. And then we learn about the techniques and like how we play certain tunes, like the way that we play it. And then we learn about um, uh, classics or like modern jazz. It depends on the combos that we're in. And for martial class, it, it's more like an improv class. So we can just, we jam, we have jam session, live jam session. And then sometimes we just sit down and listen to new music. And it's really cool. That explains why you're so uninhibited on the stage. Um, I know we had a guest artist here, here um, this year, Delfio Marcellus, mm -hmm. and um, he was here as an artist in residence. And he, he saw what we all see <laughs> when you're <laughs> on stage and so full of life. And, and he chose you to go on a tour with him, right? With his band. Yes, he did. Tell us about that. I was really surprised and, and I was really happy. I feel like I'm very lucky because if I wasn't a part of the Iowa arts community, I would not be able to meet him and I would not be able to study with him and I would not be able to, to be, you know, be seen by him and be um, picked up and go on the road with uh, Mr. Delphi Moselles. And um, he is a very strict teacher and a mentor, um, but he is a great stage partner to, to be playing with. And um, I learned a lot from that three days trip I went with him. And um, that was that was my first time performing outside school in America. And I will never forget that day. <laughs> did did yeah. you all know he was going to select someone to go on tour with him? No, I don't think so. I, uh, I didn't even know that he was going to go on tour. <laughs> and I didn't know that he was. Well, funny story. He, he he jokingly said that. Well, when he was asking me, like, do you have any idea, like, why we chose you to be on this tour? And I was like, because oh, you wanted to give us the opportunity to learn from you and your band and such. And he was like, no, because you guys are minimum wage. <laughs> and I started laughing really hard. I mean, it's true, but <laughs> um, well, funny story. He, his band, two of his band members cannot make it to the show. So he had to ask around um, and then nobody else could make it to the show. So he was like, what if we take the youngsters to be on tour with, with us so that's how he um that's how he picked me up with another friend um in Missouri that's really really incredible what an experience you know at this at this young age and next year you're off to college where are you going to college I'm going to Berkeley College of Music following your dad's footsteps yes I'm on a full ride to Berkeley that's excellent, and that's really yeah. great. So as you prepare to leave, what advice would you give new students coming in, right? It's a lot to sort of navigate here at Idlewild Arts. So what advice would you give that, you know, freshman or sophomore coming next year for the first time? I would say that take as much classes that interest you as you can, because that's, that's like the one thing that I regretted the most my first year is that I have a lot of free time on my plate that I didn't really, well, I didn't use them, but there's a lot of really cool classes that I didn't take. And I cramped them all up in my senior year. 
and I have I have like 20 22 classes now because I cramped them all up in my senior year and I think that if you wanted to learn if just take advantage of what the opportunity that you have like like if when you're here in adult arts just take as much classes that interest you as you can that's really great and one more thing I thought about just listening to you what will you miss about Idlewild Arts when you when you graduate and go to the next thing? Uh, I will, I miss, I'll miss everything about Idlewild Arts. I'll miss the campus itself. I miss Idlewild itself. I'll miss the people, my second family that I created here. Um, I'll miss my teacher. Yeah, I'll, I'll miss this place, but I'll come well, back I to don't... visit. <laughs> well, Idlewild Arts will miss you, Anne. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's my honor. Thank you so much. My guest today was Anne Tron, a senior at Idlewild Arts Academy. I spoke with Anne via Zoom on May 23rd, 2022. You've been listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series, presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation, we at Idlewild Arts have always believed that art is the greatest teacher of humanity. We continue to believe that the practice of creativity hones a person's desire and ability to affect global change. My name is Pamela Jordan. Thank you for listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series, a creation and production of Idlewild Arts Foundation. Executive producer, Pamela Jordan, Directed and produced by Rose Colella. Edited, engineered, and mastered by Justin Holmes. Graphic design by Mark Biley. Marketing and publicity by Dana Albright, Molly Maple, and Alice Metcalf. Marketing assistance by Rose Colella. Production and research assistance by Keith Miller. Creative consultation by Palencia Turner. Technical support, John Lawrence, Michael Quick, and Tom Wadbrook. Our theme song is Beaconing, composed and performed by the incomparable Marshall Hawkins. Pamela Jordan was appointed president of Idlewild Arts Foundation in 2014. Prior to this position, she held the distinction of being the first female and first African-American head of school of the Chicago Academy for the Arts, a position she held for 12 years. She currently serves on the boards of the California Association of Independent Schools, the Association of Boarding Schools, and Art Schools Network. Pamela is also a member of the Global Education Advisory Council for Shanghai Hauer Collegiate School, Kushan. One World, One Idlewild, the series is a production of Idlewild Arts Foundation. Any use of materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of Idlewild Arts Foundation is strictly prohibited.